Our text this morning, if you uh, have a moment, I'm going to give it to you right off the bat so you could scroll through and I'll read this text in a little bit. But it's in the prophet Amos. And I'll let you find it on your own. All right? Maybe some of you have never heard of the prophet Amos, one of the minor prophets. And uh, I encourage you to, to, to thumb through there and, and find yourself in chapter 8 as I'm, as I'm kind of giving, giving some opening statements here and, and a little bit of context for you. So let me just share with you something that I, I experience, you've experienced in your life. And it's simply this. I'm just thinking of, you know, as that little boy, he goes into the kitchen, he opens the cupboard, and then he says, what can I eat? When the cupboard's full of food, there's nothing to eat. What he's saying is, I don't want that or what's in there, right? So let me make it personal. As I open the fridge at home, go to the refrigerator, and I look in there, and I see nectarines, and I see slices of cheese, and I see other fruit, and I see other goodies and drinks, and I'm looking in there, and I go, I don't know what I want to eat. How many of you have done that? You can relate to that. It's all filled up, and yet we don't know. Because there's, it's like we know what we want, but we don't know what we want. You know what it is? It probably means we shouldn't be eating in that moment. That's really what it means. But I want something. I don't know what I want. It's all there, but I don't know what I want. Then just back away and don't eat, right? But it's all there at our disposal. We have options. We can eat. There's good things in there, and there's some sweet things or things that aren't so good for us, but we enjoy. But we, we do this all the time, and we experience this in our own lives, with our kids, our families. We, and we, 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 it's like a form of complaint. But I want something else. I don't want what's there. You know how it is when you get served certain things when you're a kid at the table and you just don't want that and you make faces and you, you reject it and you make life hard for your parents. So we get to Amos. And Amos is dealing with something very similar but, but much more severe and tragic, actually, to the umpteenth degree. When it comes to the cupboard being full of, of food and plenty to eat, really... But the Israelites saying, I don't know if I really want that. I want something else. Isn't there anything else? Amos came from a town called Tekoa. And you'll find that in the first verse in, 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 in the, the book of the Bible named after him in chapter 1. And he was by the Red Sea in the wilderness of Judea. And he goes up north to the kingdom of Israel, to the capital city where He goes to the king's court. He goes there and he starts to give his prophecy that God sends him to give. And listen, Amos was a country preacher. And here he comes and he's delivering the message of the Lord. This was customary in the Old Testament where prophets are coming and they are God's mouthpiece and they are to deliver directly and specific instructions and warnings and guidance to God's people. Now, it's really amazing because you can't really describe the contrast that, that is between what he's about to say and the affluence and what was happening in that country, in the northern tribe of Israel. The, nor- the southern as well, actually, truthfully. See, here's the thing. Uzziah was the king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. It's part of history, and it's in the Bible. You'll find it in the Bible in First and Second Kings. You can read all about it. 
And he was a wise and he was very capable and an able administrator for 52 years. You know what's awesome is that one day Eli is going to be a king of some sort. I'm telling you right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I just praise you for that, Lord. Seriously. He's going to have a great voice to preach. Hallelujah. (laughs) Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was, again, he was, for 41 years, he was an incredible general. One of the most successful Israel ever knew. Jeroboam, you can read about him. It's awesome stuff when you think about leadership and the conquests and the victories that he had. And the country was stable. I mean, there was everything good was going on. There was no fear. They were safe. They were, there was success that was going out their ears in many ways. And these two, men, these two men were friends, Uzziah and Jeroboam, in the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. They were, and they combined, they brought their kingdoms. Just to give you background, Solomon had this thriving, expansive kingdom, and they brought it back to kind of like almost that Salamic glory, if you want to call it. They did. You can read about it. I'm not, I can't give you all that because of time and everything, but it's, you should study that. They conquered Syria and the nations around. They did amazing things, and God... God, it was part of God's plan. And in the prophecies of Amos, he speaks about their affluence and their success. In fact, most of the prophets did. They spoke about how great things seemed on the surface and actually were in many ways, in economical and social ways, uh, things that were going on, religious ways. They seemed like they were all okay and steady. He talks about, if you read earlier in the chapters, about their summer homes and their winter homes. You know, like they were snowbirds. I mean, really, he, you can read about that. And, and, and he speaks of their ivory palaces, of lying on couches of ivory. Now, I don't know if it's straight on the ivory, but probably padded. But think about that, ivory, and ivory is, even then, to carve it out, was something luxurious to have. And, there, and it's in, you can read that in Amos chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. He describes how they're very optimistic and, and describing the evil day as far from them as possible. They were so up, there's no way, nothing bad. We are so good, we're set. All optimism, all positivity. And he describes the day of the Lord in Amos chapter 6, verses 8 to 14, which they say was a day of increasing prosperity. Now listen. This was 760 years before Jesus came. Do you know that less than 40 years after that, they were no longer? You get the picture. They were no longer. The northern kingdom was no longer. And not only that, the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586, suffered the same fate by the Babylonians that the northern kingdom suffered to the Assyrians. Listen, it's amazing. It's amazing. And how we don't learn from history as well. and How we're blinded by, well, so many things before I get on a tangent. But how we can misunderstand the signs of the times. And we assume because we all eat and we're not hungry. We all have homes and we have a place to reside. Nothing ever bad will come. We're safe, we're secure, we get complacent, we get relaxed, and we're good. And in the meantime, while that's happening, our hearts and our minds drift off, and we rely on our own 
abilities and capabilities and resources to say, we're going to keep this going, we're all good. And it was the same way in the day of Amos. You know what they were saying? All is well, we'll be okay. All is well, we'll be okay. It's all going to work out. I'm optimistic, I'm positive, it is, I'm telling you. See, the northern kingdom was in the greatest financial revival and the social stability that they had since, as I mentioned earlier, King Solomon. And they trusted. This is the thing. The nation, the people of God trusted their own society. They trusted its government. I'm not implying anything else by saying that, by the way. So don't run, okay? This is just a factual statement about them. They, trust, they, they, they trusted its government and they trusted its worship of the gods of the land for its success. It wasn't Jehovah, it was all the false gods. They trusted the false gods. And then comes Amos, this country preacher prophet. And he says, this is what he says. Hey guys, the end of prosperity is in sight. I'm telling you. Just around the corner, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Now, if you are here at New Hope, or if you're a Christian and you're visiting, you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, and you've read the Bible, you know that this parallels, and this is an echo of what so many prophets said over and over and over again. And it keeps on going to this day. And even in the church now, we hear a word like this, this is going to end. Let me, let me just summarize it real quick without getting too detailed. Jesus is coming. This isn't going to last forever. Oh, no. We're all good. Everything is going fine. We're going, to, we're going to find a solution to all our social problems and add any adjective we want to justice, and it will just clear everything up. Listen, justice stands on its own. You don't need to add anything before it. Justice is justice, and it touches everything. So stop buying into that. Sorry for getting passionate. It stands on its own. And God's people fell prey to that. But they were guilty of injustices with the poor. That was something that was going on here, by the way. And they were reminded by the prophets very often. But that's, I'm getting a little off here. Don't get me too fired up here. And Amos comes and says it's going to end. And Peter reminds us in his epistle, and he says, oh, people are saying things are just like they've always been. What do you mean Jesus is coming? What do you mean the end is coming? What do you mean destruction is coming? Oh, God's put up with sin. He's put up with believers and and believers compromising. He's not coming. It's going to be another million years. Don't worry about it. He says, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. It's just around the corner. And here's Amos giving this message. And what do God's people do? Mm-mm. Stop talking. I don't want to hear it. It doesn't even stop there because Amos comes and he had the audacity to state that Jehovah was going to punish these people politically, financially, physically, and spiritually. Oh, listen, this isn't a doom and gloom message. So don't, this is reality, okay? It's a reality check of our world where there is sin and there's lots of sin all around us and we need to make sure we resist that sin in our own lives and don't fall prey to it. And then Amos comes before the nation of Israel and he announces four judgments in, 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 recorded in Amos. First of all, he records there's four reasons for this judgment. And the first reason is that there's false worship going on. 
Now, that's a sermon in itself, but I will just list these. Second thing, the reason that he came to give four judgments is because they were worshiping the wrong gods. Not only was it false worship, they were worshiping the wrong gods. Thirdly, they just flat out rejected Jehovah, Yahweh, their God, the eternally self-existing God who was their covenant God. They rejected him. And fourthly, these judgments were coming because they rejected God's love, his mercy, and his provision for them. You know what they were doing? They were biting the hand that made them in the first place and fed them. That's what they were doing. See, the first judgment that we read of is in Amos chapter 5 and verse 27. And God says this through the prophet, Therefore, I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, to Babylon, to the Euphrates, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And he repeats that again in chapter 7 and verse 17. So the first judgment of God is that they would go into exile and be in captivity. That's the first one. So what's the second judgment for all these reasons that I just listed, the four reasons? The second judgment of God is found in Amos chapter 7 and verse 9. And the high places of Israel, God says, through, through Amos, shall be desolate. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. See, the second judgment was desolation. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. There will be nothing there. Nothing. Laid down, nothing there. No life, no worship. Even these high places, these places of worship, down. Why? Because there's a false god and false worship that's happening in those places, and God says, I'm holy, I'm just. As much as I love you, I'm just. And my standard of holiness, you have violated it, you keep violating it, this is part of my judgment. It's coming down and it will be desolate. Just the word desolate. I mean, to, can you, nothing around you. Think about that. You wouldn't want that, would you? Like nothing, it's hard. It's difficult. It's hard to survive. It's hard to live. You can't thrive when it's complete desolation. And that is, that is hard stuff. But God was serious. The third judgment of Amos is in the prophecy is found in chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. And I'll simply summarize it this way. And it's hard to hear. But again, God is holy. It was death. That they would see people that were falling all around them as a result of their rebellion against God. It's not pleasant to say things like that. But again, we have a holy, righteous, and just God. But then we get to the fourth judgment. I'm sorry for flying through this. I know I'm apologizing, but there's a lot to these things. But the fourth judgment is found in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, which is where we'll read now. The days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. It sounds absolutely ridiculous to say that the prophet is saying something like this when God is sending prophets from time to time. But the truth is, they haven't listened. 
They've ignored, they've blown off all these prophets and all these words of warning. After the first three, there is now this judgment of famine for the word of the Lord. For the word of life. I'm remembering, and some of you might remember, if you know Bible history, and you think of other kings in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of Saul. And he comes to mind. And he does something that is prohibited, by the way. But for some reason, God allows him, <clears throat> excuse me, he, 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 he permits this apparition, if you will, the appearance of the Spirit. He conjures up through the witch of Endor the spirit of the prophet Samuel. Now again, puzzling scripture. I'm not here to resolve the issues there. I am just simply saying that what the Bible records. And Saul says to Samuel after this experience, now listen, this is devastating. It's devastating. It's hard. And it's like, when I think about it, I don't ever want to be in this situation, and God help us to not be in this situation. Saul says to Samuel, the prophet who comes to him, he says, I am so distressed, for the Philistines are making war against me, and God is departed from me, and there is no answer from him. And there is no prophet to speak what I should do. There is no word of God. There is no voice of God that is coming. And Saul is freaking out. And he went to this resort to even conjure up this spirit to hear something. Because he didn't hear God. And it was a reflection not only of what was happening in the nation of Israel and their hearts and their relationship with God, but Saul himself to some extent. He wasn't the greatest leader, you know. Well, a lot of them in the word weren't, but God is still good and has a plan, amen? And it reminds us of our humanity and how God's plan will not be thwarted. And I, I, it's just indescribable. And I think it's lamentable. It's catastrophic sorrow. I don't know what to do and I can't hear anything. I don't know where to turn. I'm distressed and there's no word from God. Did you ever feel that way? Did you ever feel that way? It's okay to admit that. And to repeat, the first judgment was captivity and exile and slavery. But let me ask you a question. And I'm being serious about this. What is exile and captivity if God is with you? Oh, it's not easy. Oh, it's not fun, as we would define fun. But if God is with you when you're captive, you can get through it. You have hope. You have something to hold on to. You have His presence. You have His Word whispering to your heart and to your spirit and nourishing you and, and just touching you in a way and empowering you that if He wasn't there, you would otherwise not have. And boy, there are many captivities that we go through and some of them are self-imposed. Some of them are put on us by others. But when you have God with you, you can get through it. Do you remember John who wrote Revelation? He was exiled to the island of Patmos. 
And if God wasn't with them, but we know he was, think about that. And he's there to starve of of exhaustion and being isolated and, and exposure to everything that's going on. And listen to what he got. Heaven opened up to him. God comes and gives him this vision. And now we have the book of Revelation. And he saw God and he saw something that was we will never experience in this lifetime like John experienced. All while he was exiled. So what is it? What is captivity and exile? Oh, it's real. It's not fun. But if God's with you, what is it? The second judgment, I remind you, going back again, is that it was desolation. There was a, it was a wasteland. There's nothing left. But let me ask you this question as well. So who cares? What if there... I don't say that nonchalantly. I'm, I'm saying that it's like a hyperbole kind of thing. It's a comparison. But really, what is fire? What is a flood or loss or desolation or waste if God is with us? God's with us. Even when we have nothing, if God is still with us, we've still got everything. That's hard to live life that way when you're in that situation, I understand. But I go back to Job again. There's that character. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. In chapter 1, verse 21, when he's sitting in his ashes crying out to God, God, what is going on? What is happening to me? And what did he say? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall go back. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. And what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. God was still with him. And he knew it. The third judgment was the judgment of death. But again, what is death if God is right next to us? If the word and the promise of God's word, of Jesus' words, are real to our souls, what is death? You think of the words that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 at the end. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And that includes every word that comes against us. From Satan's mouth himself. From the lies of the enemy. From the lies of the culture and the world. From your own mind that wants to put you down and say that you're not a child of God or that you're not worthy or whatever it is. That you really aren't cleansed and sanctified. Oh, it's a done deal. When you're a child of God, you're a child of God. And when that comes, and when those things come, and even death itself, you still got Jesus. Give me Jesus. I've got God. What is death if Jesus is standing by? I'll give you an example. I can't. I, these, these proof texts, if you will, that are there. In the book of Acts, the apostle Stephen, when he is about to be stoned to death, he lifts up his eyes and there on the right hand of God stood the Lord Jesus Christ and he's ready to receive him as the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. He's facing death and he sees Jesus. Unwavering, nothing changing. I've got Jesus. I'm good. It's triumph. It's actually victory. And it's, listen, Jesus is near. And you know what? It is so tragic, and that is the tragedy, that the famine for the word of life, for the hearing of the word of life, that has overwhelmed our world and has snuck in and crept in to even so many of those who are called Christians. Now, There isn't time this morning for me to address 
what I'll call the great pagan religions, we know what they are, that they have consciously and purposely and willfully refused the Holy Scriptures. The millions of millions. I know that when I say this, it's not popular. I know that it strikes a nerve with people out there who get mad and justify, oh, your God is mean, how can that be? And you have all kinds of arguments. But listen, there are millions and millions of Hindus in India who purposely refuse the Holy Scriptures. There are millions of Buddhists in Burma and Thailand and all over the world, all around the world, especially in the East. There are millions and millions of Shintoists in the shrines of Japan. There are all the stirrings of the Muslims in the Muslim world that bring terror because of their violent opposition to what they call the infidels, the Christian faith. Oh, that's not true. It is. Pastor Dan, by the way, made that abundantly clear in a very clear message just a couple years ago. It's true. They are opposed to the Word of God, to the enriching truth of God's Word. And there are other millions and millions who under socialist and communist governments, they outlaw the Word of God. I don't know which ones exactly and to what extent, but I can assure you in North Korea, it's probably not a good idea. They do meet underground. They hide out. It's not to be taught. It's not to be propagated. And it is only to be preached in certain places, and maybe even then in certain times. See, they have exchanged the living Word of God for philosophies, ideas, social structures that are void of the Word of God. And if you want reference for that, you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. And Paul writes in this courtroom before God, and he says what it is there, that they have exchanged, I'll just paraphrase, the truth for a lie. And they have turned everything upside down, embraced it, and God has turned them over to all those things that they want and said, have at it, knock yourself out. You want nothing to do with me. Go for it. See, here, there is a difference between our time and Amos' time. Because Amos is talking about a famine for the hearing of the Word of God. Now, I don't know if you caught it. I've held off on saying this. I don't know if you've caught it. But it does not say that there's a famine for the Word of God. It says that there's a famine for the hearing of the Word of God. Oh, that's very different. That's very, very different. For the hearing of the Word of God, to actually listen, to ingest, if you will, into our minds and into our souls, our hearts, and allow the Holy Spirit that that the the digestion would happen, and that we would absorb the nourishment and the nutrients of the Word of God. Not just to hear it and say, oh, that's great, that's a great idea, I fill my head, yeah, let me critically, you know, just break that down now and tear it apart. No. To hear it. There's a famine. There's a hunger. There's, a, there's actually a famine. There's nothing left. There's no desire for it. We have Bibles everywhere. Yes? We do. You have access to the Bible. Most of you have a Bible app on your phone. Let me encourage you to get version. Anyway, get... Get the Bible app. 
Most of you have that. You have the Word of God right there digitally. Most of us have multiple copies of the Bible in our homes. They're all around us and we can still get the Word of God. And yet in our world, and especially even here, there is a famine for the hearing of the Word of God. We, listen, it's so neglected now. It's ignored and it's dismissed. We see and we feel the tragedy of exchanging the truth for a lie. You know, a healthy spiritual diet for a deadly one. You can feel it. We see it all around us. Right now, right here, in the intellectual, the secular, the material, the humanist, the academic, the political, the social, the economic, the personal, the religious, the domestic life of America, there is a famine for the hearing of the Word of God. Now, I know, and I'm looking at most of you, it probably, you might say it doesn't apply to me. And I can understand, and I, I, I can fit into that camp, because I read God's Word, I feed on God's Word, and I, so I understand that. But it's happening all around us. And it's a tragedy of turning aside from the living Word of God for, again, to these blind and fortuitous, I guess, ideological systems that are taught and our people are receiving as being the truth even of natural science. You know, there's this thought, and a lot of people have this, and they say things like this. You know, if you really research it and do study... You can find and research, and if you examine it, you can see that the Bible was written at unknown times by unknown authors and assembled in the 4th century at Nicaea by men. And the writings of the Bible can be given no historical credence today. To believe in Christ as actually having existed, you have to believe that these late writings were divinely inspired, and that's absolutely absurd. And you have to bridge a huge gulf. It's a leap, a massive leap of faith. Surely, this is the bottom line. What you've got to do is you've got to just forget about the myths and the legends of the Bible. And just, or if not, then at least accept that that's all they are. That's the mentality, and even more. See, there has been, and there is, a turning aside of the Western world, and America especially, from the Word of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ to the multitudes. And they've turned to new prophets, not like Amos, not like Jesus, not like John the Baptist, not like the Apostle Paul even, who had a prophetic edge to him even, who do not heed the word of God, the truth. I just had a conversation with a friend, actually twice, with two different people, one friend in particular who's here this morning, and reminding me of how there are preachers of large churches today that people are buying in and it's, I'm going to quote what he said because I love it. It's a message. It is a word of God that people are listening to where the Christianity is taking out the Christianity and focusing on just the I in Christianity. That's where we are. That's where we are. And it's the same thing over and over and over again. And it's what people want to hear. See, these things can't save us. They can't, listen, because it's so relevant. Whether you want to admit it or not, and if you want to argue about it, that's fine. But it's so relevant. These things can't save us. These people can't save you. Karl Marx can't save you. 
Lenin can't save you. Biden can't save you. Trump can't save you. The Democratic or Republican Party can't save you. Sigmund Freud's theories and all his theses and all that, all the psychologists and everything, they can't save you. And even the advancement and the achievements of science can't save you. Is there other benefits? Well, of course. Nobody's arguing that. They cannot save you. And that is what the famine produces. This is what the famine produces. That there is this deep, and the Bible talks about it, there is this deep, perpetual restlessness. It's a search where there is an ignorance as a result of no word of God in the heart. People are searching, and and Amos writes about that. He says, and people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east in verse 12. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Not because it's not there. It's because they cannot hear, they do not want to hear, they push it aside. And they are malnutritioned, and they're suffering and dying. There is so much attempt to substitute something religious for the word of God. And then there's this even conscious search that people have that we find no answers and, we're, and we want something new and novel and exciting and a new theory about the Bible or a new revelation or something to prove this or that about our views in the Bible. Not Christ himself. So we're coming to the end. Who is affected by this famine? Well, in Amos' time, as in our time, everybody, the whole society, everybody there. But it manifests itself, especially in our days, for the youth. Look at verse 13. In that day, the beautiful virgin, the young men, will faint from thirst. They will faint from thirst. They will be hungry and thirsty. There's a famine. They will have nothing. They don't want it. They're not searching in the right place. They're trying in their own efforts, and they're not getting anywhere. Doesn't it sound like our world today? It's spiraling. It's spinning. There's so much nonsense happening from our leadership down. And things that are being spoken of make no, not even logical, not even reasonable. Not to mention, they're not truthful. Scripture indicates that a similar famine is scheduled in the last days. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, That in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves and seek out preachers who teach them what they want to hear rather than what they need to know. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Oh, may we seek to be part of the remnant church, of the church that holds fast to the truth of God's word. And I hope that we remain, that you and I remain part of that flock that eagerly reads, we mark up, we learn, and we inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures. As so many of you already do. Hallelujah. Praise God. And on a daily basis, maybe you haven't for a while, saturate yourself in the promises of God and be careful to fulfill all the principles and precepts that we are required to uphold in our Christian life. What's the answer to this famine? What's the answer to this famine? Jesus. Well, yeah, it is Jesus. You know how you start to relieve and to get rid of this famine? Put away our idolatry. Quit worshiping and serving creatures. 
and not God himself. And it happens so subtly and so strongly in our lives that we've got to be on guard, all ever on guard all the time. And that's what God's people were doing. There's a parallel to what they were doing and to what we have to do to get out of that famine. And of course, they did not want to do that. Secondly, quit running after experiences. Experiences are the byproduct when you eat a good meal, but you've got to eat it first to say, that was fun, that was good. You've got to eat it first. You've got to put it in your mouth. You've got to swallow it. Then you know that it's good. You can't just look at it and say, that's good, having never tasted that. That's, come on. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. And thirdly, seek the Lord and his word until he begins to speak to you. Let me tell you, he will speak to you. He will speak to you. Read his word. Talk to him. He'll speak to you. In 2 Kings, King Josiah had it in his heart to turn to God and repair the temple. And he was visited by Hilkiah the high priest and Saphan, who was the prophet. And he said to the king, We have found the book of God. I encourage you to read about that in 2 Kings 22. The book of God, the word of God, the law and its scrolls was missing. They wanted the book of God. And it was an amazing discovery that they found this. And, and, it, and it's an amazing discovery in national life. And it's in your own personal life. And in political life. And in social life. And every life. To discover how pertinent and how meaningful and powerful and impactful the word of God is. In front of you, you have the communion cups. I ask you to take those in the chair in front of you. If you don't have one, we can make sure you get one, or there might be some extras in front of you. You can peel off that top film to get to the wafer. And now as you have that wafer, I want to remind you that Jesus came, as I mentioned earlier in our service, He came as the Word. The living Word who walked on this earth. His book is called The Word. He opens to us all the visions and all the beautiful things of His glory by the promise of His unchanging and enduring Word. It lasts forever. My prayer is that God, that it would just live in us and we would Feed on it. Read it. Listen to it. Heed it. And God, I pray that he would speak to us. And that we would have life as a result of that. And we would get out of a famine or a point where you're, you're hungry and get back to the word of God. And as we had this communion in our hands, these emblems, Isaiah 55, 11 comes to mind because the prophet says, and God says to him, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You know what he wants? He wants you. He wants your attention. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to not just hear about him, but to hear him. Hear, not just hear. Hear. He wants you to hear. And in that way, you will feast and you will eat. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, he said. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat. 
and not die. I want to repeat that. Which anyone may eat and not die. No, it's not this way for right here. This is representative. And in these moments, it's a powerful thing by God's grace. But it is. It's representative of Jesus himself and our relationship with him. That Jesus said that unless, he said, here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will never, will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Jesus isn't here physically. He's not. That's the truth. He's at the right hand of God the Father, but He is here. He's present by His Spirit. And we, when, we, when we partake of this bread, we are saying, God, I want to take care of the famine. I want to satisfy my hunger by eating of this bread, by connecting to You and being in relationship with You. Have you done that? Have you asked Him? Have you come to Him, submitted to Him, and feasted on Him? If you haven't, I encourage you to do that. Lord, I thank You for coming for us, Jesus. Thank You for dying for our sins. Thank You for giving us Your Word and Your truth that we might, Lord Jesus, not be in a famine, that we may not be hungry and thirsty, but when we are, we will be satisfied and quenched because we feast on You, we drink of Your Spirit. Father, I pray, Lord, that today You would touch us and cause us, Lord, to remember that the nourishment of our soul is dependent on our feasting on You as we read Your Word and fellowship with You. Let's eat of the bread. We also know Matthew 26, Jesus had the Last Supper with His disciples. He told them to take and eat that bread, but He also said to take and drink of the cup. It's the cup of the new covenants. It's a reminder that Jesus washes away our sins. He brings us into His family by faith. So let's drink of the cup together. Father, we pray, Lord, for our nation. Father, we pray for our church. We pray for Your church across this globe. We pray for ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would constantly, Lord, be feasting on You and not go to substitutes or replacements for You. Father, I pray that when we are famished, when we are malnutritioned, we would reach out to You by faith and feast on You for the nourishment of our souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Feast on Jesus and on His Word. Amen.